in Montesquieu, uh, which is one of the reasons I have both of them in the book of Ameritopia, was one of the most widely read philosophers during the constitutional period. Uh, his argument for three separate branches of government, uh, he's the one that maybe not first proposed, but most predominantly proposed it. Uh, so, and you know, Adam Smith and David Hume, and I can go through a whole list of them. Uh, modern day, I, I guess I would say that people consider them philosophers, sort of Milton Friedman, Hayek, Mises, uh, men of that sort. And then there are many others, I'm sure I can't remember them all, but um, not one in particular, but, but all together. And by the way, the framers were well read on well, obviously, not men who didn't exist at the time, <clears throat> but many of the men at the time and before uh, their time who did exist, they were well informed about the Enlightenment, about uh, about what had taken place before history. You look at Jefferson, the Declaration of Independence. The Declaration of Independence borrows heavily, uh, heavily from uh, from Locke's Second Treatise on government. Uh, the Constitution borrows heavily from Montesquieu's Spirit of the Laws. Um, and so this is a good thing, and these are the philosophers that I think, and others, many others, who should be the focus of our educational system, who should be the focus of our public discussion, but I fear that uh, other than a very small percentage of the population, most people have either never heard of them and certainly don't know much about them. So I, I try to do my best to spread the word. Welcome to the underworld. I love America. It's been my home all my life. Ladies and gentlemen, the very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. Access America. This is your history. This is your this country. Is your this country. is America. Join us in listening to some of history's America's best speeches. Created by Jarcodes Productions. Go back in, Go time, back with in us time with us right now, right now. on Public, Public Access, Access America. America. Who's on the other side? The philosophers on the other side? Um, well, the, the Marx and Engels, I think uh, when people talk about progressivism or democratic socialism or even liberalism, many of them may not realize how much they take from uh, from Marx in one form or another. It doesn't mean you need to round up people and put them in gulags. <clears throat> oh, that clearly has been done. Uh, but, um, you know, the Fabian socialists of Europe borrowed heavily from Marx. I think the progressives at the turn of the last century borrowed heavily from Marx. This whole notion of redistributing wealth and radical egalitarianism and so forth, these, these are all Marxists. But that said, Marx talked about the withering away of the state. The problem is, as Lenin himself said, 
We can't figure out how that part works. So uh, the state never withers away. In fact, the state becomes oppressive, horrific, and all-powerful. And from Ameritopia, once the state is under the control of the proletariat, its objectives will generally include the following ten tenets. Abolition of property in land and application of all rents of land to public purposes, a heavy progressive or graduated income tax, abolition of all rights of inheritance, centralization of the property of all immigrants and rebels, centralization of credit, centralization of the means of communication, equal liability of all to labor, combination of agriculture with manufacturing, free education for all children in public schools. Yeah, I'd say that we've covered, what, six or seven or eight of those? That's uh, from uh, from Marx and uh, the Communist Manifesto, and that's uh, those are his ten planks. And I think six or seven of those you just mentioned we've adopted. Um, so, look, the uh, the the the... The so-called progressive in the progressive era, uh, these people clearly rejected. Let, let me put it to you this way. You cannot be a utopian statist and support increasingly centralized government and the diminution of individual liberty and state authority and support our Constitution. I mean, the, it's just not possible. And this is why I say we're in a post-constitutional period. And, we're, and the trajectories completely in the wrong direction. It's increasingly centralized. I mean, today it's healthcare. God knows what it'll be tomorrow. But, uh, but the fact of the matter is what these people are pushing on the left and have been pushing is, is not within our constitutional framework. As a matter of fact, it attacks our constitutional framework. So you cannot be, I just want the liberals out there listening to understand, you cannot be a, a hard-line liberal, or as I call it, a statist, and support the Constitution. You simply can't, and you don't. We've talked about status. We've talked about utopianism, another word that you use in your first book, Men in Black, Originalism, and you quote Robert Bork, and you say, this is Robert Bork talking, originalism seeks to promote the rule of law by imparting to the Constitution a fixed, continuous, and predictable meaning and then you go on to write, originalists object to the judiciary grabbing power in the name of advancing a social good or remedying some actual or perceived injustice. A couple of points there. First of all, the idea that the courts, let's take the Supreme Court, is this uh, wonderful institution that never gets its wrong is simply preposterous. Um, it was the Supreme Court that issued the Dred Scott decision. It was the Supreme Court that issued the Plessy versus Ferguson decision. It was the Supreme Court that issued the Korematsu decision. And from my perspective, to the Supreme Court that issued Roe versus Wade. These are inhumane, horrific, in some cases genocidal decisions because these are imperfect human beings. And that's been my point and that will continue to be my point. I have no problem with a court system with an implied judicial review power because it's implied an implied judicial review power where the courts or the justices understand the limitations on their roles. On the other hand, when they don't, there has to be recourse to this short of a constant uh, national uh, uh, loggerhead situation <clears throat> where one group feels this way and one group feels another way. And that's why I propose that the state legislatures, three-fifths of them, have the power to override a Supreme Court decision. Wouldn't it have been wonderful if three-fifths of the state legislatures 
had overridden the Dred Scott decision as an example, or the Korematsu decision as an example. Um, but there's a lot in there, uh, in, the, in those one or two lines that I can address. Uh, uh, I mean, the, the, the whole notion of the judiciary today uh, is having the final word. Um, somebody has to have a final word at some point. I get that. But when the final word is so outrageous or so disconnected from the Constitution, from the perspective of a large segment of the community, of the nation, uh, then the final word really doesn't have legitimacy, particularly if the court does it in a way where the court steps outside its bounds. As for this notion of originalism, it simply means this, without getting into the different disputes and there are about what it means among originalists. What it simply means as a general matter is this, when a judge or a justice is deciding a constitutional matter as opposed to a statutory matter, a matter of equity and so forth, they are to try to discern what the framers meant, first by the words in the Constitution, then by the uh, supporting historical record. And if none of that exists, that doesn't give them the option of going wildly into the, uh, into the darkness, uh, Im imposing their personal policy preferences on the nation. Nothing gives them that power. So you can have originalists like a Scalia and Thomas who approach their job properly, but come up with a different result. That happens. And that's the key. It's not the result. It's the manner in which you seek to interpret the Constitution and enforce the Constitution, not necessarily the result that comes from that. So the, the alternative to that is you have a handful of lawyers who wear black robes, who you call your honor, who, uh, who happen to get on the Supreme Court, who, uh, who impose their own wishes, who rewrite the Constitution, who do whatever the hell it is that they want to do, and that is lawlessness. So, you know, lawlessness in the Supreme Court is a problem. Mr. Levin, where'd you grow up? I grew up outside of Philadelphia in a township called Cheltenham for most of my youth, um, in a particular community called Elkins Park. It's a wonderful place. Why did you grow up there? Why did Jack and Norma live there? Well, that's a good question because they were born in Philadelphia <coughs> and um, they started a nursery school and uh, day camp right outside of Philadelphia in Springfield Township, Pennsylvania. So pulling back just a little, I was originally raised in Erdenheim, Pennsylvania, which is in Springfield Township, and then we moved to Cheltenham Township, which wasn't far away. Um, so they were small business people, and my mother was a uh, former teacher. My father was a uh, artist, and, uh, and they, they started that business together, and they ran it for almost 20 years. Are they still living? They are. My father's 88. My mother's 82. They are just, you know, they're they're wonderful. They uh, still they in the Philly area. They they live in Florida, and uh, there's I have an older brother Doug who lives in the Philly area, a younger brother Rob who lives in Virginia, and my parents uh, were role models for us. I mean, uh, my belief in this country, my love of this country, my desire to do what I can in my own way, in my own role, to preserve what I can, that comes from my parents. Uh, the notion of hard work wasn't just taught to us. I saw it. I saw how they worked every day, 15, 18, 20 hours a day to make it work. And after they uh, were done with the uh, 
the school and the day camp and sold it. They uh, started a small store in uh, Jenkintown, Pennsylvania, which sold, uh, you know, furniture and and lambs and things of that sort. Why'd you go to law school? Because I had to. I wanted to be a lawyer. I went to law school. I mean, I, I don't know why. I mean, I feel I could have been a lawyer without having gone to law school, but that's the system, so you got to go through the system. Uh, because I wanted uh, to deal with these issues. I mean, um, uh, you need that certificate. You know, you need that diploma in order to be able to, f- uh, to do what I do in another part of my life, which is as president of Landmark Legal Foundation. So I don't just write and talk about these things. Uh, we try and litigate around these issues, whether it's the EPA or Obamacare, or immigration and so forth. So uh, I felt that... Uh, that that degree would give me a tool that I needed in order to advance what I consider the cause of liberty. And how did you use that degree? Or how do you use that degree? Well, that degree, by the way, I don't know that I could actually find the diploma anywhere. <clears throat> I'm sure it's hanging somewhere. Well, I use it as, as the president of the Landmark Legal Foundation, but I also use it in my radio show to analyze court decisions and, uh, and, uh, and other issues that may come up and also in my writings. Um, I'm not sure the degree itself really gave me an edge in terms of my own studies and uh, drawing from scholarship and writing and so forth. It didn't hurt, but, you know, I was in a hurry. I got out of high school early. I got out of college early. I wanted to get out of law school early, but the dean wouldn't let me. So I wanted to get through all that and jump into what I'm doing today. You worked with Ed Meese. A great man, a great mentor, was Attorney General of the United States. I was, uh, among other things, his chief of staff. This notion of originalism, he he reintroduced it and promoted it in the 1980s as Ronald Reagan's Attorney General, uh, which was absolutely crucial. Um, We had some hectic times there because uh, the left hated him because he was so effective, so they were trying to unleash prosecutors and so forth. But the fact of the matter is uh, he, w- he was a really effective, uh, forward-thinking attorney general. So a lot of the people you actually see on the courts today or in different uh, organizations promoting liberty and the Constitution and so forth worked in the Mies Justice Department in one unit or another, in one division or another. So there's a whole army of, uh, of conservative-slash-libertarian constitutionalists out there who, who got their first job or their most prominent job in the uh, in the Meese Justice Department. How did you get from chief of staff to uh, Ed Meese to a radio show? <laughs> wow. Uh, well, I'll tell you. When I, let, me, let me put it to you this way. I've always been enamored with talk radio. I mean, I'm 56. When I was... A teenager, I would listen to the transistor radio outside of Philadelphia to talk radio in Philadelphia, but more often talk radio in New York. Um, and I would listen to various hosts there, Gene Shepard, Barry Farber. My favorite was Bob Grant, who just passed away. And I just want to say one thing quickly about him. Grant was an icon in talk radio. He was always very gracious and kind to me. And... Uh, and he will be deeply missed because he, he, he really helped blaze the trail 
for Concerto Talk Radio today. So I'd listen to him, and I and I wrote the local radio station. It was WCAU at the time. I think it's WPHT now. And asked if I could do a talk show. I was 16, I think, at the time. And they let me in. I did one show, and that was the end of that. It wasn't intended to be a permanent show, but probably to get, get me off their backs. And uh, I wasn't planning on making it a career. And then uh, over time, in the 90s, uh, and then in the early 2000s, um, I was often on cable TV debating a Clinton impeachment or what have you. And and then, uh, you know, I was a big fan of my friend Rush Limbaugh, who's a mentor of mine, a big fan of my friend Sean Hannity, who's a mentor of mine. And I subbed once or twice for Rush, but I subbed numerous times for Hannity when he would take vacation. And uh, the program director at WABC, he said, you know, I think you have a knack for this. Would you like to... Uh, try a Sunday show. He said, no, we can't pay you anything. I said, that's fine. And I tried it. And uh, Sean kept prodding me to do it. And so I did it for, for a little over a year. And then I guess they wanted me to do more. So now I'm, I'm doing more. And now we have a very successful syndicated show. So that occurred post Reagan administration. Um, <clears throat> I'm not sure if there was one specific thing that did it. It just kind of came together. What makes for a good radio talk show host? What's, what's that key ingredient? Integrity. Not being a phony. Not getting on the air, listening to consultants telling you to talk about bologna sandwiches, that people are interested in that, to lighten up, you know, to talk about this, that, or the other. Uh, you know, to to try and get to the millennials, to try to be yourself, have integrity, have substance, be compelling. And all of that, hopefully, is entertaining. Don't be a circus clown. You know, don't be a clapping seal. Um, the most successful talk radio hosts, in my view, it's not something you can learn. It's not something you can teach. You either are or you are not. You either come through that mic and are compelling as, as your own personality, your own thinker, your own substantive person, or you're not. And you can tell when people are faking. The audience, the, the other thing I would say is the audience is smart. The audience is really smart, particularly in talk radio. So don't act like they're stupid and don't talk down to them and don't try and mislead them. Uh, my radio audience is, is the most important thing I have in radio. Uh, my radio audience is what makes me successful. Um, otherwise, I'd be talking to the walls, you know, I'd be talking to the ceiling. And so have respect for your audience. So I try to come in every evening when I do my show, hours and hours and hours of preparation, of thought, um, of what, what I might say that is interesting, that uh, might entertain as well, uh, and that affect people's lives. Uh, so... You know, I crack jokes. Uh, I get angry. You'll see my, you know, all moods of personality. That's the nature of the beast. That's the nature of every human being. Uh, but as I say, integrity is crucial and having respect for your audience. You don't do much TV anymore, do you? I don't do a lot of TV unless I want to do it or need to do it. Um, I figure what I have to say, I say on the radio every day, and people want to hear it, they can hear it. Um, 
Uh, I'm not into TV that much. Uh, it's not to say I don't like it when I do it. But, you know, the nearest studio is 40 miles away. That's an 80-mile round trip. And to sit there for five minutes and listen to some liberal in my left ear while I'm trying to get some comment out, uh, I don't know. It seems like a waste of time to me. But you never know. Maybe I'll do more of it. But uh, we get invitations all the time, and I do appreciate the invitations. just that I don't accept many of them. Accepted yours. We appreciate that. How much anonymity do you have? Well, my face is on all these books. So, although the last one, I asked them to take it off. Um, Why? I noticed that. Well, how many of my faces do people need to see? <laughs> and if you Google me, there's a zillion pictures of me. Um, how much anonymity do I have? I don't know. I, I, uh, I'm not a social butterfly. I don't go to a lot of parties. I don't go to a lot of events. Maybe I'll speak three or four times a year. Um, I don't do paid speeches, even though I get the offers to do those. Um, you know, I like my anonymity, but on the other hand, I understand at times why I don't have anonymity. Um, I have a great life. I'm blessed. I enjoy every aspect of it, anonymity or no anonymity. Hi. Um, I've listened to Mark Levin's show every night for years now. And from what Mark Levin means by liberty is the criminal elite looting this country clean, impoverishing the middle class, and paying no taxes on the wealth they've stolen. What he means by liberty is no public money for Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, education, or the rebuilding of our crumbling infrastructure. He is a propagandist for the criminal elite posing as a right-wing conservative. And his liberty amendments are to bring to an end, once and for all in the United States of America, any political representation for anyone in this country but the criminal elite. That was Laura in New York City. She figured me out. I confess, I'm part of the criminal elite. So uh, what do you want me to say? You know, I could play a kook for 10 minutes. That's very entertaining. I could go back and forth with her. But what's the point? She's a kook. Because she disagrees with you? Well, not only because she disagrees with me, as most kooks would. Um, no, but that uh, I don't believe in any public spending whatsoever. I believe in the constitutional system. There is public spending under the constitutional system. I'm not an anarchist or anything of the sort. <clears throat> the other thing is the criminal elite taking everybody's money. I'm not in the government. How am I part of the criminal elite taking everybody's money? Why is it my responsibility to bring rationality to irrational people? Hi. As a conservative, I'm, I've been concerned about the division among conservatives, uh, not over goals but over tactics. That seems to be kind of creating a fission that I think is going to uh, be very detrimental in, in the success of, our, of the goals that we all want to achieve, such as you know abolishing Obamacare and stuff like that because we argue amongst ourselves over the tactics of how to get there. And I just wondered if you felt like that was a real concern or, or what your answer to that is. I think that's a good question. The problem is um, the Republican establishment, the rule, part of the ruling class, um, they've gotten their way. They nominated McCain and he lost. They nominated Romney and he lost. Uh, Mitch McConnell and the boys in the Senate are pretty much the same ilk. Boehner, unfortunately, is pretty much the same ilk. 
Some of us have just drawn the conclusion that the country is perilously close to the abyss. When you look at over now $100 trillion in unfunded obligations, you know, when I finished Liberty, the Liberty Amendments, it came out in August, we were talking about a $17 trillion fiscal operating debt. Now it's 17.3 and rising. Um, these are unsustainable. Um, the Social Security uh, trustees say that Social Security is unsustainable. The Medicare, Medicaid trustees say that's unsustainable. Obamacare is unsustainable. Unless and until the Republican leadership and the Republican bureaucracy figures out a way to address this, that's not timid, that's not deceptive, the Republican Party is going to keep losing elections. It'll win one here and there, but the trajectory, as I say, will not change. So... From my perspective, the Republican Party has to get back to its roots, its grassroots, and become a party of principle again. Not purity, but principle. It has to have positions that, that, that juxtapose the left and what this president and this administration is doing. Also, unfortunately, when you look at the prior Republican administration, the debt grew the highest in American history until this Democrat administration. So... Uh, I think we have to be uh, truthful to ourselves about what's taken place and rational about what our responses should be. And I don't know how this is going to work out, but I think the days of the uh, Republican establishment and bureaucracy just getting their way without challenge, I think those days are over. And from the Liberty Amendments, Mr. Levin writes, the federal government consumes nearly 25% of all goods and services produced each year by the American people. Yearly deficits routinely exceed $1 trillion. The federal government has incurred a fiscal operating debt more than $17 trillion, far exceeding the total value of the annual economic wealth created by the American people, which is expected to reach about $26 trillion in a decade. It has accumulated unfunded liabilities for entitlement programs exceeding $90 trillion, which is growing at a 4.6 to 6.9 uh, trillion dollars a year. Thank you. Do you know the safest place in the world to be is at a Trump rally? When Mexico sends its people. sending their best. They're bringing drugs. They're bringing crime. They're rapists. Vote for Donald Trump. Vote Islam. Lock up. Every woman lied. What was it? This was locker room talk. Yeah. Yeah. that yeah. I think I would probably get along very well with Putin. Oh, I don't know what I said. Oh, I don't remember. Please don't lie. I don't remember. I the whole baby. That's what I said. I don't throw babies out, believe me. I love babies. Actually, I was only kidding. You can get the baby out of here. He, he said, said I had small hands. Actually, I'm 6'3", not 6'2", but he said I had small hands. They're not small, are they? I never heard, I never I heard, heard that one before. Hillary Clinton needs to get her ass spiked. Do I hit it low? Is Trump strong? I am officially running for president of the United States. Thank you, Anthony Weiner. And we are going to make our country great again. I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue.
shoot somebody. And I wouldn't lose any voters, okay? It's like incredible. He referred to my hands if they're small. Something else must be small. There's never been anything like this, so go and register. Make sure you get out and vote. Russia, if you're listening, I hope you're able to find the 30,000 emails that are missing. Immigrants and immigrants, they mix together. I feel he's the last chance we have to establish law and order and preserve the culture I grew up in. Would I approve waterboarding? You bet your ass. If you don't speak English and don't contribute, get out. I'm going to take such good care of women's health care issues. I have such respect for women. I cherish women. She's the devil. So far, we're doing well, though, right? Have I been a good messenger? He's a war hero because he was captured. I like people that weren't captured. This is a movement like people have never seen before. God bless the state of Ohio. I thought I heard a little voice over there. I get him out. Take him out. Yeah, man. Am I allowed to rip that whistle out of the mouth? I'd rip that whistle. Go home to mommy. I love the old days. You know what they used to do to guys like that when they were in a place like this? They'd be